Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 7 through 10, 20. Go eat your bread with joy and drink wine with a merry heart, for God has already proved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under, under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favors to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in the quiet are better than the shoutings of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in lowly places. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If a serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies his words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies on him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. You have uh, probably never heard the names 
John Snow and Henry Whitehead. Snow was a medical doctor in the 19th century, England, and he was a pioneer in the field of anesthesiology. Uh, Henry Whitehead was the Anglican pastor slash missionary of St. Luke's in London. Both Snow and Whitehead lived near the slums of London's Soho district. Now, in 1854, there was a cholera outbreak that killed over 600 individuals all in this one community. And everyone at the time thought that cholera spread through foul air, but Snow believed that it spread through water, but he couldn't prove it. Well, Whitehead, that pastor, found the missing piece. He noticed that while dozens of children were dying in the midst of this cholera outbreak, the elderly widows in his congregation kept showing up Sunday after Sunday. Now, the widows here at Mount Vernon, you just say, well, we're tough. But Whitehead knew that there must be something else going on. I mean, what kind of disease goes after the young and healthy but leaves the elderly uh, at, at peace? So, so Whitehead, the pastor, began to ask some questions in his parish, and he realized that it was the children who went to the water pump and carried the water, drinking it on the way home, delivering it to their families. Meanwhile, during this period when the water was contaminated, the elderly widows, not having anyone to go to the pump for them, continued to drink the safe water, and they survived the epidemic. Now, Whitehead's observation helped Snow prove that cholera spreads through water. And it eventually led the entire city of London to redo its water system. And so, like that poor wise man that you just heard about from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, their wisdom saved a city. Now, Ecclesiastes is a book about wisdom. It's a book about wisdom in a grossly unjust world. The author is called the preacher. Again, he's the one who, who, who convenes, who gathers the congregation together, and he speaks to them. So he's called the preacher, and he is brutally honest in his sermons about how futile life can seem, but he's never hopeless, and the wisdom that he gives us in this book is more valuable than all the gold and all the treasure chests in all the world. This is an amazing book. And I recognize that because it can be kind of hard to read, it's not always the book that one goes to except Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a time for everything. But outside of that chapter, it's just not a book that we know very well, but there is so much wisdom for us. And, and wisdom is powerful. I mean, you need wisdom. Wisdom's not, probably not going to make you famous. But if you understand biblical wisdom, you are closer to truly knowing, deeply knowing the work and the will of God. And who doesn't want that? So I have five marks of a wise Christian. Uh, we should all aim to be wise. 
We should all aim to be wise. Not because wisdom saves us. No, God saves us through faith in Christ alone. But wisdom, true biblical wisdom is the evidence that you have been saved by our merciful and wise God. So how important it is for us to pursue that wisdom, which is not only the mark of a wise Christian, but it's just the mark of a Christian. So uh, I, would, I would never discourage you from taking notes. It's just that I have a lot to say. I've got five points. And uh, I just want you to feel freedom to not take any notes. Uh, if that's going to lead you to fall asleep, I just leave that to you. But that's between you and the Lord. Um, at the end of each point, I want to ask the question, what does what I just said have to do with the gospel? Uh, I want us to see how Ecclesiastes, in point after point, points us ultimately to Jesus Christ. All right, so five marks of a wise Christian. Number one, first, the wise know how to enjoy life. The wise know how to enjoy life. Look again at verse 7. Go, eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain or vaporous life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Sheol, of course, being a reference to death, the preacher knowing that life is soon going to be over, uh, and so now is the time both for work and for enjoying life and enjoying the fruit of your work. I should say, having been preaching through Ecclesiastes now for a number of weeks and having revisited this topic of enjoying life, I will say that enjoying life is not an easy topic for Christians. Uh, we talk a lot more about suffering. Uh, there's a lot about suffering in the Bible. Um, we tell one another to enjoy Christ, enjoy Christ, enjoy the gospel. Those are the types of statements that come from our lips. I, I think we talk less about, in, I'm not saying we do it less, but we talk less about enjoying life's pleasures like food and wine and, and marriage. And maybe, maybe this is because we equate enjoying the world with loving the world. Loving the world, that is idolatry, that is sinful. Uh, loving the world is the fruit of idolatry. But enjoying the world is the fruit of grace. And so the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes in chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, in chapter 8, verse 15, again and again and again, the preacher tells us to enjoy life. Now, we talked a couple weeks ago about the, the need for lament, right? So there's a little bit of a paradox here. We're to be lamenting, but we're also to be enjoying life. Clearly, it pleases God when his creatures enjoy the world that he has given us. Verse 7 says that this kind of enjoyment is something that God has already approved of. He's already approved of it. God's approval there, I think, refers to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God created everything. He created everything good. God gave this good world to Adam and Eve, both to steward 
and inevitably they were to enjoy creation as a gift from God to them, and not merely the produce of the world, carrots, peaches, peas, broccoli, and so forth, not merely the produce of the world, but, but marriage. God gave Adam and Eve to one another. He presents marriage as a gift of God. Now, of course, marriage is not a gift for everyone because not everyone is called to marry. But those who are married should enjoy it. Husbands should enjoy the wife whom they love. Now, that's not implying that, you know, if you don't love your wife, don't bother enjoying her. The, the point is enjoy your wife. By implication, right, by implication, wives should enjoy their husbands whom they, of course, love. Enjoyment. Now, there are, of course, times to endure the pain of self-denial. So last week, uh, Caleb Canode taught Sunday school class, the one I've been going to on the spiritual graces, and he talked about, about fasting, right? There are times to refrain from good things like food to sharpen our longing for something even greater than food, the return of Jesus Christ. In chapter uh, 7 of 1 Corinthians, husbands and wives may refrain from physical intimacy so that they can devote themselves to prayer. Again, there's a time for everything. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about disciplining his body, keeping it under control. Sounds very painful, but he's to do that. Self-denial is biblical. It's a, it's a, it's a regular part of the Christian life. But denying ourselves and enjoying life shouldn't be pit against one another. That's what the preacher in Ecclesiastes seems to be getting at in chapter under chapter. Living under the sun, which inevitably is going to mean pain and difficulty and perseverance and endurance, doesn't have to exclude the enjoyment of the many good gifts that God gives you, even in the midst of the most difficult times of your life. I'm struck how in verse 10, the preacher says that we are to work with all of our might, whatever you set your hand to do, and that seems to be the context here, it seems to be toil, you know, you're to toil with all of your might. He says that right after telling us to enjoy life. You want to tell them, like, don't you realize I can't enjoy life while I'm working? Well, that doesn't seem to be the preacher's attitude, right? You can pour out your life for Christ while enjoying the world God gave you. In fact, this is God's plan since in verse 9 it says that is your portion in life. Your portion both to do the work God's given you to do and to enjoy the life God's given you to live. Enjoying life is to be done while working, while we toil under the sun. Now, we all have work to do, right? You have classes to pass. You have bills to pay. You have diapers to change. Not me, but some of you. You have parents to care for. You have a church to serve. 
You have brothers and sisters to disciple. You have neighbors to evangelize. This is our, our toil, our work, but none of it should be done with long faces. None of it should be done with complaining or with moaning. Verse, verse 8 is a call to celebrate. Right? Let your garments be always white, right? Not clouded with dust and ashes. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. These are, these are party words. Your work isn't to be done with a sour face. It's to be done while you are enjoying the life God's given you to live. Work hard for the Lord. Enjoy everything from the Lord. Now, what does all this have to do with the gospel? Let me make a, a bold statement here. Christians are the only ones who can truly enjoy life because we know the one who gave us life. Christians are the only ones who can truly enjoy life because we know the one who gave us life. Let's suppose it's November. That means Christmas is around the corner. Though it is not yet time to listen to Christmas music, it is time to include Christmas illustrations in my messages. <laughs> if you find that inconsistent or hypocritical, that's your issue. <laughs> now, let's suppose you receive a gift from Christmas, but you don't know who gave that gift to you. It's an anonymous gift, which is better than no gift, but you don't know who gave that gift to you. You unwrap it, uh, you like it, but you have no idea who it came from. And so your enjoyment of that gift is diminished. Nothing wrong with the gift, but the enjoyment of it is diminished because you don't know who gave it to you. Whereas when you know that your mother or father or your son or daughter went to extraordinary lengths to understand what you would like, they, they purchased or made it for you, you open it up and you almost don't care what the gift is. You're just so glad to receive it from them. Right, your enjoyment of the gift is magnified, it is amplified, the volume of that enjoyment is turned up because you know from whom it came. And those gifts came to you with love. Well, well every single day of the Christian's life, he or she lives knowing that every good and perfect gift is from above. We know that. We know that ultimately all the gifts that we receive are from God, the gift of breath, right? the gift of health, the gift of food, the gift of air. It's all from the Lord. We know that. We know the one who made us. We know the one who gave us this world. But even more importantly, even more significantly, every day the Christian knows, the Christian knows that he has been fully and finally forgiven by God. And only the Christian knows, only the Christian knows that he deserves the wrath of God for his or her sin against him. But that wrath has been taken by God who loves him, who loves her. Only the Christian knows that. And it's that knowledge, not just of God giving indiscriminately, you know, good air to all those who walk the face of the earth, but God giving quite deliberately salvation to those who are his children. Only those who know God like that can really enjoy the good things in life that God has given. You cannot enjoy life 
Not really. Until you receive Jesus as the one who paid your debt. Who gave you the gift of salvation. And only when you know Christ has fixed your deepest problem. Your sin. Only then are you free to enjoy his abundant provision. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and you don't agree with me, please, I'll be at the door after the service. You can email me. You can call me. Tell me about how much you enjoy life. Tell me. Help me understand better how you are enjoying life. Because as I read the Bible and as I live the life that God's given me to live, I am increasingly convinced that you cannot enjoy life without knowing the one who gave you that life. And he is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So that's why I say the wise know how to enjoy life. Number two. The wise know how to spot a fool. The wise know how to spot a fool. Now, Jesus knew how to spot a fool. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it'd almost be a fun exercise to read it with this question in mind. What fool is Jesus spotting in this chapter? He recognizes the foolishness of those who turn the temple into a marketplace. He recognizes the foolishness of those who are demanding a sign while the Creator is standing right before them. He recognizes the, recognizes the foolishness of those who seem to boil down religion to, to praying in public. I mean, Jesus is always spotting a fool, and the preacher in Ecclesiastes wants you to be able to spot a fool as well. After all, if you know how to spot a fool, you're much less likely to be one. What are fools like? The preacher says a lot. I have a lot to say here. Fools don't know how to listen. Look at verse 17. The words of a wise and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Fools shout because they want to be heard. That makes me want to be quiet right now. They love to be noticed. They must win the argument. Well, some arguments need to be won, don't get me wrong. But a fool is happy to win any argument. Fools long for the last word. They don't want to take the time or make an effort to understand. They, they don't know how to listen. Fools leave behind a trail of broken relationships. They leave behind a trail of broken relationships. Look at Ecclesiastes 9, verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner or one fool destroys much good. Right? The, the preacher is drawing a contrast between the restorative, healing power of wisdom and the destructive power of sinful folly. Right, we see this at work in our own relationships. Remember how Paul encouraged Philemon, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Right? The wise refresh the saints. Fools tear them down. There's a time for rebuke. Right? Christ is perfect, and because Christ is perfect and we're not perfect, there is time for us to be rebuked. Someone will sharpen us, will correct us for our own good, but even that word of rebuke done wisely is restorative, healing, life-giving. It builds relationships up, doesn't tear them down. So look at your life. 
Are the relationships that you have, are the relationships that you have healthier because of your presence in those relationships? Or are they weaker and more sickly? Fools leave behind a trail of broken relationships. Fools also underestimate their influence. Fools underestimate their influence. And now for the most famous verse in our section, chapter 10, verse 1, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Right, the fool thinks, well, I don't really matter. The fool is convinced what she does really isn't that important. And the preacher says, not true. Don't you know that just a few flies make the perfume bad? Right? Your foolishness can ruin an entire community. Now, this is why Jesus refers to false teaching as leaven. Right? Leaven is that ingredient that spreads through the dough spreading all throughout the dough so that when fully cooked, the bread will rise. Well, Jesus said false teaching is like leaven. It spreads throughout the people, throughout the church, making the entire church sickly and unhealthy. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul uses that same image of leaven. He applies it not to false teaching, but to false living. In other words, Paul says there's a, there's a kind of immorality, uh, uh, an unrepentant life in a Christian that if unchecked, if unaddressed, spreads throughout an entire congregation, spoiling everything. So Jesus, specifically referring to false teaching, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 referring to false living, say, be careful. You are very influential. And if you're going around saying things that aren't true, if you're going around living a life that really compromises the gospel because you say all the right things about who Jesus is, but then you go and live basically like a non-Christian, you are going to influence those around you. They're going to wind up thinking, I'm not sure the truth of this gospel is really all that important. After all, look at all the people listening to this false teaching. Or... I'm not sure that God cares that much, that I'm that holy. After all, look at all the people around me. They're nodding and winking about lives that look subpar. And Jesus and Paul both say, before you know it, the entire community is corrupt. And, and fools don't see this. They don't appreciate the influence that they have. Fools accuse Christians who try to hold them accountable. Again, those Christians who do recognize the influence of fools and therefore seek to correct and rebuke them, the fool will accuse those Christians of being judgmental or legalistic instead of faithful and loving in seeking to point out, according to Scripture, not according to someone's personal opinions, what is true and what is false, and what is moral, godly, and what is immoral, ungodly. Now, you've heard it said, because I've said it, and others have said it, 
Everyone wants to be known as a servant until he's treated as one. Very common saying. Here's another one. Everyone wants to be part of a community until the community says no. Fools don't like to hear no. They underestimate their influence. Fools are also blind to their foolishness. Look at verse 2 of chapter 10. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. So not only does the fool go in the wrong direction, and please, you don't need to read anything political into verse 2. It's just go in a different direction, all right? The fool doesn't care. That's what's so fascinating about these verses, right? The fool can be out and about, and then at the end of verse 3, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Who does that? Well, the fool who doesn't really understand what foolishness is. That's the only way that verse makes sense. He doesn't understand just what it means to be a fool. He's blind to his own foolishness. And so it's all out there, all out there for the world to see. Foolishness, the preacher says, has a way of blinding us. We can be numb or callous, unaware of our own sin. Right? If you, I know this isn't true 100% of the time, but I think it's true often. If you look in a mirror long enough, you'll see what you want to see. No, that's not true for all of you, but I think it's true for most of us. If we look in the mirror long enough, we're going to start diverting our eyes from that which in the mirror we don't want to see, or we'll start seeing ourselves as better, more attractive than we actually are. But when you look into God's mirror long enough, when you look into the Bible, God's mirror, you'll see what you need to see. Look into the Bible long enough and you will see what you need to see, not what you want to see. You'll see yourself as you really are, the blinders will come off. Fools don't know how to listen. They leave behind a trail of broken relationships. They underestimate their influence. They are blind to their foolishness. One more thing, fools are easily offended. They're easily offended. Look at verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. You see, patience is a piece of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So is gentleness. So is meekness. The fool is neither. Neither calm, nor meek, nor gentle, nor patient. And when the ruler, or honestly, the boss, when anyone really in his life gets in his face, gets angry, the fool is very quickly going to walk off in a huff. While the wise man... And the wise woman says, do I have something to learn from what's going on here? I have been, well, as you, now if you're a member of Mount Vernon, if you read the weekly emails, and uh, you're free not to read them. It's okay. If you hit delete, I will love you anyway. But if you read last week's weekly email, yeah, I've been married a quarter of a century. Whoa, so has Dina. And <laughs> for some of you, that sounds like an eternity. And then brother told me this morning he had been married 50 years. Alan, is that you? 50? 
So for some of you, it doesn't seem like that much. Either way, one of the best ways to serve your spouse is to lay great offenses to rest. And don't take my word for it. Take the words of the folks married 50 years or more. Now, what does all this have to do with the gospel? Well, this morning we heard the Chalcedonian Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed from Chalcedon, uh, which teaches that Jesus is truly God and truly man, 100% divine, 100% human, like us in his humanity, unlike us in his divinity. Now, there's a lot that that implies. Of course, one thing that uh, that statement said is that because he's truly God, he's without sin, and that means that he can save us. What it also implies is that Christ is no fool. Not one fly in the ointment of Christ's perfection. Only Jesus, the man who is no fool, can save us. Fools like us. The wise, they know that. So the wise, they spot a fool in the mirror and they quickly turn to Christ. All right, the wise know how to spot a fool. Number three, the wise know how to spot a leader. The wise know how to spot a leader. So much of Ecclesiastes is about leadership. The author identified himself in chapter 1, verse 1, as the king in Jerusalem. King Solomon had led Jerusalem badly. He saw the destruction that he caused. And Ecclesiastes is the word of a repentant king sharing wisdom about godly leadership. Now, we all have leaders in our lives. We have political leaders, those who oversee the government. We have economic leaders, CEOs, and other officers who influence Wall Street, influence Main Street. We have cultural leaders who decide what TV shows and what movies are going to be made. And, of course, we have spiritual leaders, the men who shepherd our churches. What I'm about to say could apply to any leader I'm going to be thinking particularly about spiritual leaders. So what makes a good leader? Good leaders know whom to exalt. They know whom to exalt. Look at verse 5, chapter 10. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now, these are all examples of the wrong people being either exalted or being lowered. Right? The, the word rich in verse 6 stands out, at least to me, because we don't think of being rich as being the opposite of folly. Like We don't equate rich with wisdom. But the idea here is just that it's not fitting. It's not fitting for the rich to be sitting in a low place. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense of ancient Near Eastern standards. It's, it's upside down. And one of the hardest and most important duties of a leader is to find a, a fitting replacement. And Paul's instructions to Timothy come to mind. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul doesn't tell Timothy to find good teachers who are able to be faithful. He tells them to find faithful men who are able to teach. Faithfulness comes first. 
Good shepherds and good elders will not always be the best teachers, but they will be the most faithful men. This means those who rise to leadership in the church won't always have the resume that the world expects. This makes me think of Mephibosheth. He was the lame grandson of Saul, David's rival, but also the son of David's good friend, Jonathan. On paper, Mephibosheth was an enemy of the state when David became the king of both kingdoms. But David exalted him to a seat at his table. David honored him. He was the broken grandson of his enemy, and David gave him the place of honor at the table. Well, there's a lot that could be said about that. I'll just say this. When we think of leadership, we usually think of, of gifting. Who's the most charming? Who's the best speaker? Who can cast a compelling vision, right? Gifting is important. Not everybody can do this with their hands the way that I can, right? <laughs> gifting, you know, is important. But, but good leaders, they know that integrity and character are more important. God's ways are not always our ways. The world values success. God prizes faithfulness. Right? The good leaders know whom to exalt. Good leaders are careful. Look at verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So just as a workman needs to be careful not to fall into the pit that he's digging, just as a snake charmer needs to be careful not to be bitten by the snake he's charming, so the leader, the good leader, needs to be aware of the dangers of power. And he needs to be wise enough to avoid them. Leadership is filled with dangers. If a door opens up for you to lead, you will be tempted by power and by greed. You may begin to feel that you're above accountability. Be careful. Don't fall into the pit of arrogance. Don't get bitten by the snake of pride. A good leader is careful to keep in step with the spirit, to keep close tabs on his or her own heart, to walk in holiness. Good leaders are careful, and good leaders are mature. Look at verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Right? The nation is not helped by an immature king, a king who's a child. Right? The nation instead would be helped by a son of nobility. Right? And in this context, don't think of someone's bloodline. Son of nobility is probably equivalent to what we think of when noble-minded comes to mind. Noble-minded. That's someone who's tested, someone who's honorable, someone who's mature. Uh, consider uh, two of Israel's greatest kings, David and Josiah, both started to reign at relatively young ages, but their youth 
didn't disqualify them. You can be young and mature. That's why Paul told Timothy, let no one despise you, your youth. Jesus fulfilled his ministry before he was old enough to run for office of the President of the United States. No problem with Biden and Trump there. They're totally over that threshold. Are you young? Be mature. Do things that mature people do. Pursue the Lord in private. Invest in other people. Be reliable. Are you older? Encourage the young. They need your maturity to mature. Take them aside. Love them. Encourage them to grow. Good leaders know whom to exalt. They're careful. They're mature. One more thing. Good leaders are are diligent. Look at verse 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Verse 19 there is confusing. It doesn't seem to fit. Uh, it, it, it could be the preacher is summarizing what a lazy person might say. A lazy bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and I've got money to buy both. It could be that's going on. It could simply be a way of saying, you know, if you really are diligent, don't be surprised when your dollars multiply and you've got what you need to purchase what you need. Either way, a good leader is diligent, hardworking. True for presidents and CEOs, teachers, chefs, managers, moms. Good leaders are diligent. Leadership requires diligence because the responsibilities of leadership demand time and attention. If you are in leadership, you know your schedule is not your own. Not really. You're never completely off duty. To succeed with that kind of pressure, you must be diligent. You must be disciplined. Brothers and sisters, this is the the kind of elder that you should want. You want a brother who is diligent to spend time with the Lord, to shepherd his family, to care for his friends, diligent to pray for you, diligent to devote himself to practical shepherding, Diligent to know the flock, and none of this is easy. Most of our elders are trying to balance all that with a full-time job and a family. They need your prayers. What does spotting good leaders have to do with the gospel? Well, you can turn there or not, but listen to 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'll show you. Listen to what Peter says about godly elders So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You see, God's plan is for those of you who have been saved by the gospel to be shepherded by those who have been shaped 
by the very same gospel. So that you yourself, as the years go by, would know what it's like to sit under godly, faithful, diligent, humble, willing servants. That's God's design for your spiritual growth. It's why if you're not the member of a church, you should become the member of a church to serve those brothers who will one day be held accountable for the souls of sinners like you and like me. Our elders are not perfect, but they are God's gift to you so that through their ministry, the gospel might bear fruit in your life. Number four, the wise know how to control the tongue. Now, in verses 12 through 15, it's possible the preacher is speaking to to leaders here, but, but what he says applies to all of us. I'll say very quickly, use your words liberally. Use your words liberally. Not thinking politically here. I'm talking about speak when you're saying the right thing. You should say it a lot, liberally. Verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Now, the Hebrew there literally reads, the words of a wise man are grace. The words of a wise man are grace, right? The words of the wise impart grace to others, not saving grace, but, but joy and, and mercy and encouragement and kindness, right? And when you're speaking those kinds of words, you should speak them a lot. Those are good words, not flattery. Flattery is deceit. That's sin. But great encouragement. Right? Words of grace. That's what the wise speak. So in that sense, use your words sparingly. But, but you, or excuse me, use your words liberally. But in another sense, use your words sparingly. Look at verse 13. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? I think for that, I will just uh, cite Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. All right? Speak a lot and you're probably going to sin. That's what the Bible says. So speak liberally. Speak sparingly. One more thing about words. Use your words carefully. Look at verse 20. Even in your thought, do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Now, this is practical counsel, all right? Yes, the heart matters. Your heart matters. How do we know that? Because he's, he talks even about your thoughts. Even in your thought, do not curse the king. Like, God knows what you're thinking, like, right now. Is this sermon ever going to be done? Yeah, God knows that thought that you have. Like your thoughts matter. But there's very practical wisdom here. There's very practical wisdom here. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I was leaving lunch. And this was, this was, uh, this was on, I think, a Thursday when I'm preparing for my sermon. So all Thursday and really all Friday are devoted to basically right now. But I'll have lunches usually on both those days. But I'm eager to, back to, I'm eager to get back to prepare my sermon. And as I'm leaving the restaurant, I get a call from my lovely wife of nearly 25 years. 
And she says, can you run an errand for me this afternoon? I got permission to share this story, just to be clear. And uh, it's Thursday afternoon. It's when I work on my sermon. My wife of nearly 25 years. I've read Ephesians 5. My thoughts and my words are having trouble. I'm thinking I should lay down my life for her. My heart says, why are you bothering me? And so I say something like, um, uh, seriously, I'm pausing like that on the phone. <laughs> um, right, fine. That's basically how it went, all right? So in God's kindness, somehow the errand got run without me, so I'm back to preparing to teach the Bible to you. I get home that evening, and I don't know where Taryn is, but Taryn, our South African church member, was uh, spending time with Dina that day. She was over for dinner. I walk into the kitchen. Dina greets me very warmly, and she says, Honey, did you know that Taryn was in the car with me this, mor this afternoon while you called and that you were on audio? <laughs> I didn't have time to tell you. At which point, Taryn starts laughing <laughs> and says, she calls me Mr. Menikoff, Mr. Menikoff, that was so great. I'm so glad to know you're a sinner too. <laughs> you don't need to applaud for that. <laughs> Suffice it to say, uh, verse 20 is true. A bird of the air will carry your voice. What does all this have to do with the gospel? As Brad pointed out a few weeks ago, uh, your heart shows up on your lips, right? What, what comes out of your heart, that's who you are, it's going to show up on your lips, and your only hope for liberal, sparse, and careful words is a heart that's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You're not going to be perfect, exhibit A, um, but you just can't decide, you can't just decide, I'm going to be better at this whether it's this point or all the points previous. Christianity doesn't begin with rehab, where you check yourself in to try to get better. Christianity begins with surgery, where God checks you in and gives you a new heart. That's how that connects to the gospel. Now, fifth and finally, fifth and finally, the wise know how to be forgotten. Once again, the preacher reminds us that this world is like a carnival mirror. Everything is distorted. Nothing is what it ought to be. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Now next, the preacher hones in on a practical example of the topsy-turvy nature of life. Verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it, but there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. 
yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Now, I'm not sure how that man saved the city. I just know he was poor, he was wise, and he was forgotten. And in a fallen world, that's how it usually works. Yes, wisdom is better than might, but it's usually the case that the wise are forgotten by history. And that's what the preacher means when he says the poor man's wisdom is despised. He's not remembered. He's forgotten. So often we think that like the best are going to rise. Not in a fallen world, right? The poor man, the poor wise man is forgotten. More often than not, the name of those wise men who saved the city, their name is tossed into the dustbin of history. You've got no guarantee that your faithfulness will lead to fame. And in fact, it's more likely that your faithfulness will be forgotten. But wisdom, and here's here's what you need to know, wisdom doesn't care. Wisdom doesn't care how successful you are. Wisdom doesn't care how much money you have. Wisdom doesn't care how many people know your name. Wisdom is doing the right thing day after day after day, never expecting recognition, remuneration, or applause. Wisdom is showing up for work another day. It's sending in that mortgage payment. It's paying the rent. It's waking up the kids to get them to church on time. It's another evening studying the Bible. It's another morning on your knees. Like the poor man, like the poor wise man, no one may notice, much less remember what you did. But this is the wise life. And it's better than might, better than winning an election, better than getting a prize. What does this have to do with the gospel? Look, if you would, at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. It's right in your bulletin. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Listen to what Paul says here. As I read these few verses, let Ecclesiastes be in your head. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it's no accident that the wise seem foolish in the eyes of the world. And it's no wonder that trusting the Bible and leaning into the church and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ are all considered foolish to the world. Verse 20, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. God turns the world's wisdom upside down. So, I understand at one level God is glorified in all things. But understand what I mean when I say God is not glorified in the inauguration of a new president or the launch of a new Apple product. Those events may change lives. They're important, but they won't get you to God. 
How is God glorified? Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Verse 24, this message is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel message that saved you, that, Scripture says, is the power of God. So what is more foolish in the eyes of the world than a poor wise man who saved a city? Only a poor, wise, Jewish carpenter whose bloody death saved us from our sins. That's God's wisdom. So, John Snow and Henry Whitehead, they figured out that cholera swam in the water. It didn't fly in the air. When quite literally, everyone thought they were crazy. One day, Snow, that's the doctor, told Whitehead, that's the pastor, they had to keep trying to convince the, uh, the, the medical doctors in London that this was true. Snow put it this way. He said to Whitehead, you and I may not live to see the day, and my name may be forgotten when it comes, but the time will arrive when great outbreaks of cholera will be things of the past. Today, the wisdom of the cross seems foolish to the world. It seems far less important than what's going on right now on Pennsylvania Avenue. But wisdom is better than might. And though our names may be forgotten, the time will come when the message of the gospel will triumph in the eyes of the world and sin, and sin outbreaks will be a thing of the past. So are you willing to share the gospel and be forgotten? Five marks of a wise Christian. You know how to enjoy life. You know how to spot a fool. You know how to spot a leader. You know how to control your tongue. You know how to be forgotten. None of this gets you to the gospel. All of this is the fruit of the gospel. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. and We're thankful for you, for your incredible wisdom, for the way that things that in most of our minds seem to make so much sense before we were Christians. Now we see it as, as, as sheer foolishness, sheer folly. And what makes more sense to us than anything, by your grace, is a Savior, crucified, risen, and returning for sinners like us. Jesus is everything to us. And we pray that you would use Ecclesiastes and 1 Corinthians, to shape us with the precious truths of the gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.